Hi, this is John Porteous of the Lovells Township Historical Society, and you're listening to the Backcast Podcast. Welcome back. We hope everybody's doing well. This week, Glenn and I are joined by Dennis Potter. Uh, Dennis is a world-renowned fly tire and honestly a pretty good guy, friend of the show. So we hope you enjoy this episode. We're going to talk about all kinds of stuff, and uh, we look forward to your feedback. So enjoy. Story. How did that start? That goes uh, so many years. I, it's it's got to be at least 20 years. Glenn Blackwood and I were spring steelhead fishing on the Rogue River in Grand Rapids. Snow on the ground, and we're at... <clears throat> packer below the old paper mill or whatever it was and as we're putting our stuff on two young kids young teenagers mid-teenagers come out of the woods one of them's falling in he is completely soaked so we talk to him make sure he's okay he gets some dry gear on and we go back up to behind where the mill was and it's kind of a deep long run and these kids are clueless there's no question they have no idea what they're doing so we build out their leaders and we adjust the shot and we put flies on for them and uh i said go ahead guys and he goes no 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 no, you they're intimidated now we've got these two guys standing there he says no you go you go and we say no you know there's fish in here and they they finally you know made their point so glenn made one cast bang catches the steelhead Oh, nice. First cast, and these kids are just like, wow. So we helped them with technique and that routine, and we left in a week or two or whatever goes by, and I wanted to go up to see the madness below the dam in Rockford where all of these people are cramming there, some snagging, some not, and I watched the madness and was walking back to my car, and there was a car with a beautiful day, window down and I just struck up a conversation with this guy as I was walking through. Are you fishing? Are you doing this and that? No, I'm not. He's got a box of flies out and they're pretty ratty. And I said, well, let me show you what I got for flies. So I went back and got my steelhead box. This, and uh, he's kind of looking at him. He's got this puzzled look on his face. And I said, here, take some of these. Take this and let me give you these. And he holds this fly up and he said, were you and a buddy of yours on the river a couple weeks ago and helped a couple teenagers? I said, yep, yep. He said, the kids came back at the end of the day and and it was dad and uncle somebody. And he says, dad, we were on the river and these two old guys, you know, helped us this and that. And they said they were river gods. (laughs) <laughs> so although Blackwood was the original river god because oh, he caught the fish I took the moniker didn't know go. that that's a yeah. great story yeah. oh wonderful and that, and that goes way back <laughs> so that's where the river god emerger and oh. river god this and that came okay and I don't use that much on I don't have any umpa flies right now import flies with the river god moniker on it because uh-huh. some of somebody early on said who does this guy think he is calling him a river god oh. <laughs> hey lost so, by a couple of teenagers yeah you yeah you, you didn't call yourself that somebody else did oh yeah yeah that neat story yeah that's good so my my license plate is r-i-v-r-g-o-d <laughs> so i have kept the <laughs> cool. Yeah. You, you were you were talking about floating an older lady uh, earlier 
earlier. When I was working at Gates, I left a family business uh, in 91, 92, 91, I can't remember, I'm old, but it's been a long time. I just, with two brothers, something just couldn't do anymore, had to leave, it had plans to leave, and come to work in the summer for Rusty. Kind of, you know, he talked about shop manager, and I didn't really want a title, but basically I was, a, from the middle of April, I moved up from Grand Rapids, stayed in the River House. And I was a shop rat, uh, loved the shop rat duty, particularly our 12-hour days. We'd every once in a while have to do a 7 to 7, <laughs> loved every second of it. Oh, be damned. And I guided. I had a nice river boat, um, Roger Wisniewski's number 5 boat. He was a good builder. Uh, he was a good builder. He, he, he made a good boat. Uh, most of what I did was in boots in the river teaching. Lots of beginners and did an intermediate and advanced stuff, um, just trying to put a consistent fly fishing program together for all the guides for when they are instructing. But I had a client, um, and I don't know who she floated with before, but the first year, which would have been 92, uh, her name was Audrey Bugby Kelly. She was 84, and she could do a half-day float, so we floated from Gates down to Wakeley. She fished a one-weight, which was, I was not terribly thrilled with, but she was a teeny little thing. She wore a three-quarter length Victorian khaki fishing dress or whatever you want to call it, some funny little old boots, an ancient old vest, a hat, and... Women's field clothes. Oh, she was just <laughs> absolute. And she could catch fish. She could cast she could that. Cast. She could cast that one way, but all she wanted to do was beat the bank. Audrey, there's a decent fish that fed at, you know, 2 o'clock in the river, three, you know, 30 feet down from the boat. She wouldn't look at it. So I, would, I had spots where I knew I could park, and then she could cast and catch a bunch of brook trout. And she fished Adams. So all she, fished, all she fished. All she fished was Adams. So I had tied her up a dozen real fancy, beautiful, full dress Adams, and then at the, you know, we'd go about four hours, and then hers. Was that the traditional tie or the parachute? Traditional. traditional. Yeah, she, okay. no, she, she was not a parachute. She had traditional yeah. old, and they were bad. I mean, yes, they're going to catch fish, but, you know, I, and I tie, as a side note, I, I tie Adams for people, but I don't fish regular Adams because they're not no. durable enough. Hmm. What people don't understand, and the old timer, if you will, particularly people who have been fishing traditional Adams forever, uh, I would say to them in a tying demo or whatever, just tie your Adams without wings. They work abs just as well, and they're indestructible. And they don't like that. Oh, really? No. Uh, you get some guy who's been fishing Adams for 60 years or whatever, and it's BS, it? BS on that. No, yeah. my Adams are going to have wings. So, <laughs> But we would, with Audrey, we would get down to... Wakely down to the canoe takeout, and her son, who was in his 60s, was there with a Lincoln Continental town car to oh, help geez. her get out. And then I'd pull the boat out and go back. And uh, <laughs> I have a to celebrate the flies only catch and release uh, event way back on the Asable. I had a pin made, a cloisonne pin that Fred Oswald at Pins Unlimited did, and it's a Creole. 
wow, little, shape of a and it looks exactly like a creel, but it says no creel across the top. No, no, no creel. No creel. So you no had creel. to kind of, you know, if you wanted yep. to take it to the no kill thing. Yep, yep. And I gave those to people who I had fished with or who I had taught and that kind of thing. It's a nice touch. And I went into the restaurant one night mm-hmm. when I knew she was having dinner with her son. At, very, Ga- at Gates? At Gates. Very hard of hearing. And I came in and got everybody's attention. <laughs> knelt down so I could be down on her level level and explain the story about this pin. You get this pin because it celebrates this and that. And you fished with me and not everybody gets them. And Julie was standing there too. Uh, and I walked away and left that routine and either that evening or the next morning when I went in to do shop rat duty, Julie just had a big smile on her face, you know, and wish she always, almost always did. Yeah. I said, what, what's going on here? And she said, when you left last night, she said, Audrey watched you leave until you were, uh, I went through the kitchen back into the shop and Audrey watched until I left and brought Julie down and said, you know, I can't remember that boy's name, but he's my guide from now on. <laughs> she didn't know my name. Was that the first time you'd guided her? Yeah, that was, was the, the first, first first day I guided her. <laughs> okay. I guided her a couple times the first season and then a couple times the second season. He's my Had to guy. put a 100-pound bag of ready mix behind the front seat of my boat. Other it looked like it was a hydroplane. You know, it stuck up at about a 25-degree <laughs> angle. <laughs> She now, was she was a hoot, and she, we would talk about rods. I can remember talking to her about rods the first time, um, about her boat rods. She says, "Oh, the next time I come up, I'll bring a couple of my boat rods. They're Dickerson's." Mm. Nice. So here she's probably got these ten thousand dollar rods these days that she had banging around in the bottom of her riverboat. And when she was young, in her teens. She spent summers at the Kellogg cabin and farm up by Kellogg's Bridge. You don't know which Kellogg she was connected nope. with. There were what, 17 of them or yeah. something. Yeah, no. And back then, so you figure she was 84, so put her at 16. Take it 84, yeah, In the early 1900s. <clears throat> you, didn't wade the, you didn't wade the mainstream. The mainstream was known as this big... You the the Only. the dedicated fly fisherman. You waded the North Branch, ah, but you floated, floated the the, the big crazy uh, sobble or whatever. Now, when you took her down the river, did did you stop for lunch? Did you do shore lunch? It was a four hour, so there was okay. no. I always so had no. treats. Yeah. Um, okay. And uh, I always like cooking because I'm a really good home chef. So when we would float and there'd be a meal, I would always prepare the lunch instead of using what, what the late Craig Perry and I called land carp, which was the frozen chicken breast. I mean, it was tasty. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I mean, that, during the summer, I would do lemon chicken Caesar salad and assemble it streamside. Oh, and, nice. And, and that all, intrigues all of that us routine. Because uh, that's, that can be part of the tradition of a float, you know. And it, some people just want a sandwich and yeah. they want to stop. Some people really yeah. appreciate a nice dinner. Or they can go ahead and, Eat. and fish while it's being prepared. And there's, there's a sandwich and there's sandwich. So when I would do the sandwich thing, when it's just simply too hot to cook, and I and I didn't want to do 
the salad, I would I would build some pretty spectacular sandwiches and always have a slaw or a macaroni salad or something on the side. Mm-hmm. And you need to get out of the boat. Yeah. You know, you don't Especially want to sit in, the, sit in the boat. Sometimes you had lunch in the boat for whatever reason, but mm-hmm. you needed. At least I needed a break. Sure. Um, and when I float today, I I f- far more often. And it's nice now because sitting in the front of the boat instead of the back of the boat. <laughs> uh, I, I do a lot of half-day floats. So you're either going to do the upper mainstream, the lower mainstream. That's fine. Four hours mm-hmm. for me mm-hmm. is, is enough. Um, I don't, when we were fall steelhead fishing on the, on the Manistee and that kind of thing, I didn't like being in the boat from 7 o'clock in the morning till 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I wanted a break. Um, and when we would fish, when we'd go to Montana, I would have to shop around. Like when we were going to fish the Missouri below Holter Dam, I'd have to shop around to find a guide who was willing or an outfitter who was willing to do split days mm. because typically they don't want to. Yeah, they want a whole day. So we'd go, we'd have lunch, you'd do the PMD routine or whatever it would be, then you'd stop and you'd go back to your motel room for three or four hours, and then you'd come back and either wade or you know, do another mm. short float, and I would tell the outfitter, you know, I'm going to pay, I'm going to pay, I'm going to pay his spotting fees, I'm going to, I'm going to pay for gas, I'm going to do this and that, plus I'm going to give him a really, really big tip, just for the inconvenience of it. <laughs> and I, and from a tipping standpoint, when you're floating, now that that comes up, I, it's hard work, sure. not as hard in an Osable river boat as it is. In a drift boat, because you're not rowing all day long, but it's it's still hard work. And too many people tip, not enough anyway, in my opinion, and they tip based on the quality of the catch, not in the quality of the day. Mm-hmm. So if I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, my basic tip and when I still float is it's a $50, even a half day, it's a $50 minimum. He's got gas, he's got wear and tear. The people who... <laughs> take a guide for dinner and call that a tip. I mean, that's just, that's simply wrong. You want to buy the guy dinner, buy him dinner, but give him a tip for goodness sakes. That's hard work. It's hard work, so. I, I couldn't believe how difficult it was the first time I got in a riverboat. My wife said, well, why don't you get a guy to go with you? I said, oh, I've been in them. You just float down the river. That's it's not no. that simple. I started banging into logs yeah. and trying to run like a canoe and you can't do that. Yeah. It wasn't until I realized the hell with the end of the boat I got to be a point going down the river. It can't be more than twenty-two feet away from me sitting here. So oh yeah, I you're, and you had to anticipate. Yeah, and when you're when you're when, even it. when you're not running a chain, but you're using a pole. You know, you as the guide, you've got to be looking virtually as far downstream as you can look. Exactly. Because you need a hundred or two hundred feet to, if you're on the one side of the river to get to the other. Exactly. Because you got to shove the stern over, <clears throat> put in your pole. The current brings the bow back. Yeah. Uh, Let it swing, that's fine, yeah. but yeah. it took and, me a half a trip to learn that. Yeah, and it, it was amazing. It was the guiding, because you have to look so far downstream. It was the guiding that built up my ability to be able to see a little fish feed 500 yards down the river. Interesting. Little teeny splash, so you mark that. Yeah. and yeah. I like the guiding. I like the instructing better. <clears throat> I, 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 yeah. uh-huh. I probably 8 out of 10... 
times, not in the shop when I was working. I was out in the yard, always started in the yard, and then went, the went, went to the river. And Dennis, let's go back to the beginning. When did you start fly fishing, and then when did you start guiding? And, and give us a little history. Well, I, I was in the family business in the 70s, and my oldest brother uh, was a fly fisherman. I didn't really know anything about it. He had a good buddy of his, John. They had access, they had trespass permission into the whippoorwill. Ah. The, the mainstream whippoorwill. My brother was, what was your brother's name? Stan. Stan, okay. So they could drive right down to the river cabin. And the whole group from West Michigan Trout Unlimited would come up to Gates the first weekend in May uh, and take over two-thirds at least of Gates for the Hendrickson outing. And I wanted to get involved, so I bought a Orvis Far and Fine and a Reel and, you know, the very basic stuff. Had no idea what I was doing, and then we started tying. How old were you at that time? 28. Oh, okay. Ish, 27. Um... My first fly I tied was a Henderson parachute, <laughs> and it was in Stan's basement, and it was probably better than anything Stan had ever tied. <laughs> I don't know how happy he was with it, but and it was it was evident, not necessarily right then, but very soon after that the fly tying part was going to be as important <clears throat> in the long haul as 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 the fly fishing. That's efficient. I've been a fly tying fanatic. I'm mm -hmm. not now. Yes, you are. I like. I'm not. <laughs> I like. I. I'm a, I'm a river fanatic, but I don't have the drive to fish like I used to. Mm -hmm. uh, but if if I if I had to choose to either be able to fish or tie, it's 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 a. I mean, that's a no brainer to me. I'd tie. Instead of fish. Oh, absolutely. I can go to the river and watch the river go by and watch the fish feed and oh watch my. the bugs and the oh. occasional mink and the swallows and that kind of thing. But the thought of, for whatever reason, not being able to tie, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like thinking about that. I like the tie. Now, when did you first start guiding? 92. 92 through 96, I moved up from Grand Rapids in the middle of April with my minivan absolutely packed to the gills because all of my equipment, all my fly tying stuff had to go. And then we had two kids um, and we were we were a weekend family. You had your cabin by then. Had the river house. We were a weekend family until the kids got out of school and then everybody moved up to the river house and that was just, that was an absolute hoot. <laughs> so I started at Gates in 92, um, and that was 92 through 96 or 7, I can't remember, uh, and, 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 and enjoyed it. It was, it was kind of a dream job. But your favorite was actually teaching fly testing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Well... There, Rusty really didn't have a, I was, obviously I was going to be the instructor and I've always been a fan and a follower of, of Lefty Cray, the great lefty, late lefty, 
And I've cast with Swisher, Doug Swisher, and Lefty Cray, and Mel Krieger, and Joan Wolf, and you can't change the physics of a cast, but you can change the terminology and the verbiage that you're using to explain the cast. And the Lefty Cray, Ed Jaworski method, uh, which can still be found in, I, I would recommend anybody, regardless of how seasoned caster you are, is find yourself a copy of the cast. You may have to look for it. <clears throat> Um, abs- absolutely mm. fabulous photography, and they have five basic principles of casting, which I was pretty much teaching anyway because of Lefty. <clears throat> and then he came out with the cast, and then I went home and read this whole book w- one afternoon and then memorized and switched right straight over to those five principles. I've just found them to be the most understandable logical approach to the explanation of what is happening during the physics of this cast. I'm going to get that book. John, That uh, the cast he mentions, mm-hmm. we have a picture of left, uh, it's Jaworski. Jaworski, it? yeah. In yeah a couple of pictures. In the museum, yeah, and we, I got it the first yeah. exhibit we did in 2003, yeah. and I got permission from Lefty Cray through his Jaworski to use it, and it's the best example of the whole process the line out straight being lifted back cast yeah. forward cast it's, good it's good beautiful. pencil drawings too to go along mm-hmm. with it showing the action of the rod and you know the stop and blah 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 i i just i liked it's terrific you know joan wolf obviously one of the best casters of all times if she was the world champion for five years in a row mm-hmm. joan used you know, nothing happens until you stop your cast. That's right. Jones was power snap, and I didn't like either word hmm. because effectively it's not an increase in power that you're putting in the rod. Snap lends somebody to think that you're going to snap your wrist Abrupt. and break your wrist. It's, a, it's in Lefty and Jaworski's was, it's a speed up and stop. Mm-hmm. And now it's kind of pop to a stop. Mm. Nothing happens with your fly cast until you stop. Everything's a straight line. We we use the term uh, smooth acceleration. Yep, continuous acceleration acceleration with a a speed up and a stop. And I still use the old clock thing and a lot of people don't. It really, really, really makes sense. Sure it does. Because you can visualize that clock and then when you start to teach Okay, now we're, now you're going to start casting is to, under a bush or under a cedar tree. We take that clock and you yeah. take the whole face of the clock and you tilt it down. Now two down. o'clock is here and or yeah. ten o'clock is here, clock, whichever. Clock doesn't I, change. I was looking at my clock backwards, so <laughs> so it's a very. I just find it to be a very simple. And then I have a sheet printed that I give. To, give to people that has those principles. Mm-hmm. The five that... Uh, the five, yeah. It's, I'm going to uh, get that book. It's just... It's, and it's interesting. The photography, as we were mentioning last night, one of the most important parts of the book is the last... I'm going to pick a number. The last 50 or 60 pages is casting problems and how to correct them. And he still uses photographs. Mm-hmm. You know, So here's the photograph of the rod tip 
you know, way down. way down with this big looping cast. And then he explains the process. He brings in the correct principle and then shows you the difference with another photograph of it's, 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 it's worth looking at. Mm. It's a fabulous book. And I've, I've had most of them, uh, all the casting books and they're all gone except for an old for pretty, one. pretty two, two copies of the cast. Mm. One hardbound and one really gnarly softball. You want to sell that one? No, sir, I do not. <laughs> but thanks for the offer. They're around. I think Blackwood. Yeah, would, I'll, would be I'll get a hold of Glenn and see if he had a call. We got a show coming up. You know, I mostly when I guided, I was and I, I floated. Now and then we do the Manistee. Um, although I think the Manistee needs to be done in a drift boat. It's so much more important in the Manistee than the Osable. To be up, looking down in the in the water. Really, uh, the cover is very different. The nature of the river is very different. Uh, you you go along on the Manistee, it's all sand, and all of a sudden there's a big pile of that old brush or whatever on the bottom. If you were sitting down, you wouldn't have seen it. Um, didn't flow to the North Branch, but I I was if I was on the river. Uh, chances were very good that I was somewhere between Burton's Landing and Wakeley. And you is that do your favorite water. Oh yeah, I mean I'm, I'm a mainstream guy. The River House is almost dead center in the middle of the flies only catch and release. So I, I knew and still pretty much know after all of these years the mainstream pretty intimately and and the lower stretch probably a little better than the upper. Gates, Lower. Gates to Wakeley Bridge, Gates to Town Line. It's like, it's like fishing dozens of rivers because the nature of the river changes mm. with mm-hmm. every stretch, every bend, every hole. Uh, if if we've always said if if you can devote some time to the ensemble and not just come up and hit one hatch Mm -hmm. but if you can come up and run the season uh spend some time on the ensemble and catch fish on the ensemble you can fish anywhere in the world and catch them the ensemble can be easy and the ensemble can be very difficult uh, for a num for a number of reasons. For one thing, until almost until hex, there's so many people on the river that the fish just get the snot pounded out of them. Hit hard. A lot of them don't get caught. Um, and there's there's a lot of you know when when we would float, in particular, you get the guy who's never done it before, and he says, "I can't wait to get a twenty incher." <laughs> how many how many eighteens are we gonna get today? And I I never let anybody you know set the set what their priorities or whatever were i said no wait a minute let me i want you to know what's what's going on because i I, and there were a few people i think probably in those years there were probably two people that didn't go they were convinced that they were going to catch you know this is not montana this is not the bitter root yes there's a lot of big fish in the in the river but they're hiding you know, uh, it's and it's a genetic thing. We get those three-year-olds and above that, <clears throat> particularly the 15-inch and bigger, unless there's a real event, those fish are hiding. They come out mm-hmm. at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, just very interesting. So I would tell people, here's, there's probably what's going to happen. Are we going to catch fish? Probably. 
Are they going to be big? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly somebody who can't throw streamers and that kind of thing. But, you know, I tried to tell people, don't let the number or the size of the fish dictate your enjoyment of the day. You're going to be sitting in the front of this 20-foot, 24-foot-long skinny boat, dead silent, other than a few canoes that you have to run into. Mm-hmm. And I would say, you know, look up. Look at the... You know, look at the oh, cedar wax wings flying back across the river. That, tell, that tells you that there's bugs. And uh, generally, people, people understood. And the people that didn't, many of them didn't come back. That's okay. But the vast majority of people who fish this watershed up here, if you're fishing more than just hex, understand. You know, I call it big fish syndrome. I've never ever allowed myself to have big fish syndrome. I don't mm. care. Good if you idea. put in if you put in your time and you can cast and you can dry fly and you can nymph and you could swing a wet fly, you don't have and, and you can man. you can throw a streamer, you put in your time, you're gonna catch nice fish. You dis, you have to decide in your head what a nice fish is. Mm-hmm. Well and to your point, you're gonna learn over time what a nice fish is. Yeah. And it's, like you said, it's not that 20-inch... No, (laughs) but there are a lot of people, uh, particularly people who've been to Montana... Mm-hmm. And seen a lot of, and then fish. come to the Osama, and it's like you got you got to be kidding me! I'm not gonna. Well, that's fine. Then, Very then, Very then don't come. You know. You know, Dennis. I don't think there's a prettier fish than a 10-inch brook trout. Oh my goodness! Oh sakes. my God! The they're coloration just, is they're just, just little. They're just they're they're little jewels. They're like the peacock of the river. Yeah, they're they're voracious way. feeders when they get going. Yeah. I mean, I've caught a big streamer for me. I'm not a big streamer guy. I like throwing streamers, but I don't throw large streamers. The big trend today is to throw streamers that are the size of a half a chicken. Yeah, yeah, six inches. And... Or, or bigger. And, in, you know, looking specifically for huge trout, I don't care. My, my, at least eight out of ten of my streamers are tied on a number six, two extra heavy, four extra long, straight-eye limerick bend, Stream, streamer hook. Mm-hmm. So that makes a long one for me is three, is three inches long. Hell, I've, I've caught four-inch brook trout on a three-inch long streamer before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you're casting and think, what is that? And you look, well, you've been false casting a little brook trout for it. Um, I just don't care. I want, I want to catch fish. Um, and it, with that smaller streamer, if if there's a fish in a given spot and the presentation is right, and that smaller streamer is put in front of that big fish, he may not chase it ten feet, but he's probably going to move a foot or two to eat it. So you have the opportunity to still catch some really substantial fish on smaller streamers. Streamers, you bet. Yeah, and the nature of the water that I weighed. It just simply doesn't lend itself to that great big stuff anyway. But you said you really like the dry flies. Oh, yeah. I, Tell us about your favorite hatches. I mean, you know, we know you start with uh, Hendrickson. And, well, yeah. Our first, when I first started, of course, you know, it was that middle of May. And it was always the second week of May that we went. Um, and that's the that's the first, the Henny is the first, Dark Hendrickson is the first 
sizable mayfly in 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 great numbers. There's there's bigger there's large flies that hatch before that, but there's the early black and the brown stonefly, mm-hmm. and very often there with weather and temperature conditions, you can have bugs, but very little feeding activity. Uh, then you go into the slate wings. Uh, they call them blue wing olives. We've, uh, we 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 river rats have always called them SWOs, slate wing olives. There's nothing blue about the wing of, of a early midsummer or late size twenty olive. So they're slate wing olives. They can hatch in great numbers. Uh, it's a very interesting hatch because you can have a bright sunny day and have no olives, none, and 15 minutes of clouds come through and you got a blanket emergence. So it's, it's, amazing. It, it's amazing how fast they, they go. And a little bit of a mist or yep. drizzle. And then Henriksen's, great, <clears throat> it can be a great event. Um, and it's always these people, you know, making reservations at gates to come up for that early season. When the hell do you go? Yeah. You cannot predict you how early it's it. going to go. You pick your week and you stick with it. I always opted to go, if I were to do it, I would go the week after opener as opposed the to opener or, or before because even if the hatch is burned out, you're still going to have spinners mm-hmm. and you're mm-hmm. going to have black caddis and you have the first little teeny stone flies and... The Henriksen Spinner Fall, I mean, to me, if, if there's one dry fly event that I would dream about and fortunately have hit many, many, many times over the years is a classic Henriksen Spinner Fall. We call them yellow butts. Those females are hanging with their abdomens down with that big, big yellow, egg. yellow egg sac. Um, the nemesis of that sprinter fall, you know, tem- everything's right. Temperatures and air temperatures in the high 60s, it's got to be the right kind of thing. There's no wind, they gather, you, you're sitting there, you start to shake, you just about start to drool, and the bugs get lower and lower and lower in about a one and a half mile hour breeze. Uh, that's five degrees colder than ambient air temperature comes through, and they're gone. <laughs> so what's your favorite? That's, so that's, the, if you hit it. Yeah. But what you've got to remember, particularly with the uh, Henriksen spinner fall, is you have to watch the next morning. When I was, I was doing a, a, a shop rat deal at Gates, and I like to go in and be social and pour coffee in the dining room and this stuff that used yep, to drive yep, poor Rusty crazy. <laughs> and I was like that part. He, I, I, I was pouring coffee. It was a sunny day, and it was probably, you know, it's 9, 10 o'clock or whatever, and I look out through the dining room window, and there's fish feeding. And there's a big fish feed right in the middle of the river across from, from oh, Rusty's bird feeders. I set the coffee. I'm thinking, what the hell is this? I put my coffee I put coffee pot down and go running out to the pew out to the dock, and there's Henderson spinners everywhere oh, on the water. Nice, nice. And so it's that. very, uh, uh, if, if you're up there that time of year and the spinners disappear that night and you got a sunny morning, the next day, when that air temperature hits 60 degrees, you better be standing in the water with your fly tied on 
Um, yeah. and there's no gathering. They're already mated. What happens is those, those spinners still they're still spinners. They've gone up in the vegetation <clears throat> overnight. Now they gather. They don't spin because they're all mated. They yeah. go boom, crash, oh, and they come down and it lasts about half the amount of time. But oh my gosh, and the fish lose it. Hmm. Fish completely lose control, and it lasts about a half hour, and then it's over. And it's very difficult to see them in the air because they're up so high when they gather. If you've got if if you're looking up at that blue sky and you've got the sun behind you, and you look mm-hmm. well up, if you just stare up into that blue sky, you will start to think you're hallucinating by seeing what appears to be these little teeny microscopic sparkles up in the air, and that's the wings reflecting oh, yeah. that morning sunlight. I'd never heard about that. Oh, it's you really <laughs> got to watch it. You really got to watch What's it. What's nice about the Hendrickson is the daytime hatch. Oh, Everybody sure. Everybody loves the hex. Oh, yeah. I don't care oh, about no. the hex. We, we used to, when we used to come up for that Gates Trout Unlimited thing, uh, my buddy and I, Dick Wilson, would leave early in the morning for what we called a champagne flight, and I'm not going to tell you why. <laughs> we would drive up, and we came up once, very warm, it was in the 70s, and we drove right to Pine Road. This is before the steps were even put in. Big sandy bank back then. And I pulled my car, and I look out of the window. Here's Hendrickson spinners in the air at 11 o'clock in the morning. 10 o'clock oh, in the beautiful. morning. Beautiful. We throw our stuff on, and we have an epic morning spinner full. <laughs> Go back in, check in at Gates, have an incredible Hendrickson hatch during the day, mm. and had an incredible Hendrickson spinner fall in the evening. Boy, that's perfect. I, I caught so, I caught so many big the bread and butter, you know. And back then, if you went out and there was an event and you didn't catch some of the thirteen to sixteens during the day, you weren't doing. You weren't fishing you, right. You 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 weren't fishing right. Well, of course, those days are pretty much over. But and then you go from Henriksen, you go to Light Henny, which uh, <laughs> is the Inveria. The Dark Henriksen is Subveria. Isn't like, one male, like, one female? No, it's like a big sulfur. It's a different species. Okay, different. I didn't realize. Um, that. <clears throat> little smaller. You can do 14s, but I tend to do a 16. A little spotty as to where the good populations of bugs are. Um, it's better. It's in the long haul. It's a better spinner fall than it is a hatch. And that's later. After that's the, after Hendrickson's. After the dark. Oh, and you got black caddis too, which is a completely loony event. Um, you know what? I, actually, I jumped forward. You got slate wing owls. You got Hendrickson's. You got mahogany's, After which is the, the little per, the little paraleptophlebia. That's about a size sixteen, very skinny little brown dun, and that creates very often what we call a masking hatch. And it's happened to all of us. There's Hendrickson's on the water. Mm-hmm. You're catching fish on Hendrickson's, and all of a sudden. You can't catch fish on Hendrickson, but the fish are still feeding. Mm-hmm. And you see mm-hmm. Hendrickson's on the water, so they're obviously feeding on Hendrickson's. You think. You think, and then you walk across the river, and there's three times the number of little of little mahoganies that there are Hendrickson's. In about size 16? And it's a 16, and you want to tie them real skinny. I don't tie anything, or in the past, I've changed a little bit, but typically over the past many, many years, anything mayfly size 14 and smaller, I do with a thread body. Mm-hmm. You can't, I think it's the number one problem 
with dubbed hatch matching flies in the smaller sizes is the bodies are too fat. You know, you're 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 fishing a, a mayfly where the natural the, the abdomen is is not is not two millimeters across, and you've got this big fat thing tied, and it, and it'll 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 cost you. It's a different profile I, from. Yeah, so you do you you go from Henderson and black caddis with mahogany, then you go white Henderson. Then you go sulfur, which is the pale, our pale evening done, P-E-D, um, which is, can be a phenomenal event. What uh, size are those? That, that's, that's an 18. Oh, okay. 18s and 20s. I've never seen a size 16 true sulfur. Mm. Some fish will eat them, but if you got a picky fish... And he's eating size 18s or 20s, and you give him a 16, he's simply not going to eat it. Can avoid it. Uh, there are rivers. Uh, the manistee is far more forgiving, as a matter of fact, with mm. the way that the fish feed. In a, when, when things were good, you didn't have the number of fish in the manistee that you had in the ensemble, but they were larger per age class, and they simply weren't as selective. Mm-hmm. You know, you could take a size 16 or a size 14 Robert's Yellow Drake, and go over to the Manistee and absolutely annihilate them during the sulfur during the sulfur hatch. You can't do that on the mainstream on the Osawa. Much more selective. Yeah, and then you got brown brake, and there's some little fillers in between. But for yeah. the super hatches, then it's brown brake. We always used to target if I was going to come up for a brown brake event, it was the first weekend in June. Of course, that varies. the The brown drake is a far better spinner fall than it is hatch. If you're in brown rake water, you're going to have good duns, good hatching for three or four days. But spinnerfalls will linger well after that. They're and, epic when they happen. And also in June is the Isonychia. The, uh, the old name up here because of its white legs was the White Glove Howdy. White Glove Howdy. Uh, or we call it the Adam's Hatch. Oh, is that right? Uh, I never heard that. Put on a size 12 Adams parachute in June, particularly on an overcast day, you're going to catch fish. Uh, Isonychias have a tendency to mm. um, not hatch in prolific numbers. Some hatch right in the river, but many also crawl out to, to hatch. But boy, it's a, it's, and it's a fatty. That's never. a we call that a gut bomb. There's a lot of energy there for a never, never heard of Adams used for an ISO. Oh sure. But now I think Rusty told me one time that the when the ISO first hatches it's kind of a greenish gray body, which would kind of fit with an Adams. Yeah. And then it turns brownish red later. Yeah, and it, that, and, it, and, it, 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 and it makes no difference the, it, to it, the color of your fly. Is that right? Rusty that and I used to go round and round and round and round on color. But I thought you, you need know. three colors. Of, you need two colors of olive. He said you need three colors of sulfur because uh, you got sulfurs, you got light Hendricksons, you got this, you got that, <laughs> and color doesn't. And matter. then one day, I I knew I knew that all of this stuff he was going through. He held up a bag of dubbing in the shop and said, "Dennis, what color of olive or whatever this is?" I said, "Rusty, it's pink." <laughs> he was colorblind. He didn't know anyway. It was yeah, fake. Yeah. I tie all of my olives anywhere that I'm going to go in the lower 48 with one color. And that would be 
a light olive-ish kind of thread. Um, and I, and, uh, I tie all the sulfurs, PMDs, anything out west other than a mayfly that might be truly green out there. All the yellow flies are tied with bright yellow thread. That subtle difference in the color, I'm more con I would be more concerned with the wing color of the fly than I would be with the body color. Hmm. If, if there's a fish that doesn't take my fly because it's off, the color is off one half of shade, I didn't want to catch that fish anyway. <laughs> Hell with him. Hell with him. Screw I remember at a show one time, you talking about uh, tying commercially for a guy, and he insisted that you used head cement. And if I remember oh. the story, you said something about a coffee can. Tell us that story. That's great. I was tying for Glenn Blackwood, and I was tying 750 dozen flies for Blackwood that year. This is when I had left Gates. Unfortunately, I parted very badly with Rusty, and he wouldn't take my flies anymore. So I was tying for Glenn Blackwood in, in Rockford, Michigan, Great Lakes Fly Fishing Company. And I was tying, oh, my God, huge numbers of parachutes. <coughs> Excuse me, because I'm primarily a. If I specialized in a dry fly, it would be a parachute, <clears throat> and they needed twenty-five dozen or thirty or fifty dozen or whatever Henriksen parachutes early. So I took them in and I had them in margarine containers. And his <laughs> store manager Bob, first thing he did is he takes the top off of one of the margarine containers, and I think he's going to critique my flies. And he sticks his nose in the container, and he looks up at me and says, you didn't glue these flies. I said, of course I didn't glue the flies. Why would you glue a dry fly? I want them glued. No, my flies don't come apart. Why would you take the time and the weight on the fly and everything? And it basically came down to, I'm paying you. I want these flies glued. So I said, fine, I'll take them all home and glue them. So I got home, opened up all the containers that I had shut, went downstairs and found a very, very old can of varnish. And it had about three quarters of an inch of crust in this varnish. And I poked my way through it and got down to the liquidy part that was left, smelled it. Yeah, that's got the right smell. So I took a Q-tip put a little of that liquid on the end of the Q-tip and rubbed it around on the inside of all the lids. <laughs> Dried it, stuck it back on, took his flies to him the next day. The first thing he did was take the top off the container, smelled it, and said, yeah, you got him glued. And I said, yes, I did. And if you ever, ever hear of one of my flies coming apart, I want you to tell me. You just put people tie, and they don't understand. Tires glue dry flies because they tie bad dry flies. If you tie uh, it I'm, right. I'm, I'm very, I'm keen on durability and proportion, particularly in dry flies. Uh, and certain dry flies more than other on, on proportion. My, my goal is when, what, what, what I tie, everything that I tie and this year for Gates, it's 350-ish dozen. I'll have about a 500 dozen year. Everything that I tie for any customer, whether it be wholesale or retail, is tied exactly 
the way that I time to go on my fly box. And there's a fair number of commercial tires who don't do that. Yeah. They tie shop flies, mm -hmm. and then they tie their own flies, and I refuse to do that. I'll be darned. And, and they kind of cheat a little bit? Or is it uh... At speed, uh, maybe cheaper materials. Huh. I, uh, my uh, my Hendrickson parachute, dub door thread body, thread split tails, synthetic wing, I use no... Uh, hair on wings on that kind of thing anymore. It takes me about, when I'm prepped and ready to go, that's a two minute and 20 or two minute, two and a half minute bug. I could take 15 seconds or maybe 20 seconds off of that fly, but durability is going to go out the, out the window and proportions are going to go out the window. So Why I anything I my approach is anything is a tire that you can do to make that fly more durable, you need to do, better materials, better hackle, Whiting mm -hmm. Farms dry, Whiting Farms feather products, leaps and bounds better than any other feather product. And Whiting market. is the best. Oh, and I've done I did a hackle study when you did the study, right? I, and, and it wasn't saddles. They they own the saddle business. I mean, I have dry fly saddles now. I have a gold grizzly saddle uh, that has 18 inch long mm. size 16 feathers. Un unbelievable. Same. Okay, so the thing costs 100 bucks, but it's going to tie 1,200 flies. Oh but the study that I did, and I designed it on my own, and, Chama, and I knew, knew Tom real well. Uh, he wanted somebody totally independent to do a study of grizzly rooster capes, not the saddles. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they sent me everybody's. I mean, it was Metz and Ewing and I can't even remember all of these guys. It was it was it's Spencer. It was it was everybody, including Whiting. Uh, and we were doing that. We were comparing number two, the B grader, the number two. So I developed a study. The loft, the general count, um, mm. the skin. Uh, one of the things that I just can't stand about Mets or never could stand is the skins were greasy oh. because they didn't dry them properly. You know, you take them out of the out of the bag and there's grease you all over the film. cardboard, and it, it, so um, I would measure. I would take five hackles right off. The, selectively out of the middle of the neck all the way down i would measure those and then because you can't wrap the real fuzzy stuff i would remove that measure the length of the unusable measure the length of the usable okay. have a percentage of usable mm. counted barbules per inch how do you do that? It's very slowly, and it was a complete oh, pain in the ass. With the have to have to tape it on a magnifying glass <clears> and two <throat> neat pins one, and, two, three, oh and taper, which is a very important part. One of the most important parts. Taper on a, of each barbel, each feather, because what happens with the non-whitings, if you will, you can take that. You want to tie size fourteen, and you got a feather that's let's say usable as four inches. There's only an inch in the middle that's size 14. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Up at the bottom, it's a size 10 or 12. Mm -hmm. So that's another big advantage to saddles. Is yeah, all, they're, they're all the same. So yeah. what I do, so at, at, at any rate, what, what this study came down to, and it took about eight weeks to do it, and I had help writing it up because I had never 
written a scientific paper before. It came down to that the whiting, their number number four grade, which was a commercial type grade, not even available at retail, but the whiting number four grade was substantially better in every category than everybody else's number one and number two. Mm. Abs- absolute blow away. There was just simply no comparison. Okay, so they're going to cost more. But it's 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 a value, it's a value thing. So you know, once again, I mean, if you're after dry fly feather products, uh, whiting is the only way to go. I mean, there's three different grades of saddles. There's three different grades of rooster capes. You can buy half saddles, half capes, quarter saddles. Whiting is this is not just some little chicken grower in Delta, Colorado. Mm-hmm. This this place would blow your mine. I'd love to know what his gross sales were in, in a year. How many millions and millions of dollars? Well, we're getting close to the end of our, our time. What are you talking about? <laughs> this, is, this is going on for hours. Look okay. at that. Okay. I just got that yeah. from Sam Surrey. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, this is a silver grade. I needed it done. Is, is that a decent uh, saddle? The first thing that I'm going to do, and for you people out there in podcast land, you can't see what I'm doing, <laughs> but I have a half dry fly saddle, uh, which is a cream dyed. This is called medium done. Mm-hmm. Um, there's your usable. One. There's your usable feathers right there, and I'm going to I'm going to take a flyer and say that there's very close to a hundred usable feathers there. Okay. Okay. And now, and what I do because it's a commercial tire, I can't size them individually. I have to be able to grab a feather and know that it's exactly the size that I want. That you want, sure. So I'll pull all of these long feathers. And some of these feathers that we're looking at here are nine, pushing 10 inches long. Mm-hmm. This, I'm gonna guess this saddle has been around for a while. Yeah, it has. Because if this were current, they'd be another three or four inches long. It's a beautiful product. And those have been used, the, the, the longer ones. That's well, that's what I'm going to use. We have no idea, you know, how many's been pulled out of here. Yeah. So, what I will do is I strip them all. Okay, I pull all the feathers off, put them in a pile, and sort take them. a hackle gauge and one at a time size them. Okay, and there's little you see, you can see the numbers, you know, the 10, 12, 14, and it's this little arc. And the way that I do it is if the tips of those hackles when I'm running them over the pin don't solidly touch that size ring, it goes into the one smaller. Oh, all right, all right. I use a Metz hackle gauge, and most hackle gauges size big. Oh, really? The one you have on a little, I mean, I got yeah. on a little. Yeah, so most hackle gauges, if it's a size 12, that's going to be for a size 12 parachute. Mm-hmm. Which is usually which is too big for a traditionally wrapped fly. Size 12. So the general rule is if I'm doing a size 12 traditionally wrapped fly of any kind, I'm going to go to a size 14 hackle. For a parachute? No, for the smaller oh, one. Oh, for the smaller one, okay. If you, if you take a, a, the size 12 that works on a parachute, it's going to be two times too big for a traditionally for wrapped a fly. Mm-hmm. For a 14. What that would mean is if I wrap that hackle around the hook like I would for an Adams, <coughs> excuse me, or for a wolf or whatever, that the tips of the hackle would be twice the hook gap. Mm-hmm. 
And you only want And that fly is going to, the body of that fly is going to stick up at a 45 degree angle and fall over. On a traditionally wrapped fly, the tips of the hackle should just go past the bottom of the hook. In uh, in the two big problems, the main problems with wrapping traditionally wrapped flies is number one, there's not enough hackle. If you take an Adams uh, or a Wolf or a a downwing caddisfly, a full third of the hook shank should be crammed with hackle. Really, a you can third. always you can always trim the hackle off to get mm -hmm. it down in the film. But you need the hackle to float it and twitch it and pop it. Oh. And the other thing is the hackle's too big. A third of the... Full third of the hook's in. Wow. Um, mm. And that's... That's, that, that's, 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 that's something that I look for. When I go into a fly shop and I want to see the measure of their tires, I can tell what's, commercial, what's imported and what isn't. I'll take a handful of those locally tied flies throw them out on the counter and kind of line them up and see, number one, how consistent they are. I, I, I also, in the process of tying, I want durability, I want good proportion, but I want clones. Exactly. I want every single one of my flies to be, to look exactly like the one before it. So back to your skin here. There's 12... 14s. This is parachute size. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted it for. Bluing olive. Yeah. 18s, you, you, some 18s and 20s on there? Uh, probably not. Mostly 16s. The typical silver grade Whiting Farms dry fly saddle is going to have about 300 usable feathers on them, uh, meaning very little or no web. You're gonna you're you're you may get some twelves. Mm -hmm. You're gonna get a bunch of fourteens. You are gonna get an absolute pile of sixteens. You'll get a bunch of eighteens. You may get a few twenties. Okay. I have and hundreds and hundreds. I may have a thousand. Well, I'm sure I do. And all the net and all the saddles that I've stripped and bundled over the year, and then sized each bundle. I, I I may I could have two thousand saddle feathers in zip in ziploc bags and they're Jeez. all the same. So I, oh, it's I'm a hackle junkie. I'd love to buy a a, a, a a saddle from you that would produce size eighteen and twenty medium. Thumb. The the prop the problem is you don't know until you get it. Uh, you and you don't want to re you know I don't want to be returning to my home. Technical glitch one. Back in the days when we fished the Missouri <laughs> below Holter Dam every year, uh, an amazing, amazing river, probably the most fertile bug factory I've ever been on, and it's a big piece of water. And the, and the main little town below Holter Dam, there's Wolf Creek and then there's Craig. And I was getting out of the water at, at the Craig Street, at the Craig Bridge at dark, and an old guy was just getting in, and we struck up a conversation. Uh, I had, I, you know, I figured this guy's going to go throw streamers. And I told him, you know, I was out on the little sunken island. I had just annihilated big fish on caddis. Oh, shoot. And uh, I said, you going to throw streamers? And he says, no, I'm, I'm, going, I'm fishing caddis. 
I don't know, the Canis event, the egg laying in the hatch has been over for an hour or whatever. And he said, no, just, you know, he says, I said, then you must be after big fish. And he says, I'm after fish by the pound, not by the inch. <laughs> he said, just, just stand here and listen. Listen for a minute. Well done. i got to get the other phone. This is dead. Oh, and uh, and 30 seconds or 45 seconds, I heard a fish feed out in the Missouri that sounded like a fish-eating hex. So oh, he's, oh, oh. he's fishing by sound. He's, he's hunting fish by the, by the noise of the rise. That's awesome. So he'd go out and fish from, you know, 10 o'clock till 12, 12.30. And he didn't catch anything small because now the monsters are out and the small fish have to go hide. Technical glitch two. That he called a Hank that had, it was a dry fly, it had no body, bare hook, thread tied about an eighth of an inch behind the, uh, uh, the head with a wing with a puffed up flared head like I have on my Opal and Elk sure. and Opal X Caddis. That's what he fished. It was an at-rest, dead drift Perfect. Caddis. No hackle, no nothing. It can be very effective. Of course, now I've had to put Opal tinsel on it. <laughs> so, now it so now it's the, it's to, the to Opal Hank. it? Yeah. <laughs> what are you using? A Hank. What? Uh, what? A, what the hell's a Hank? Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So, for, from the... From the guiding days, was there ever a, a thought or a, a, a tip that you left your... Never lean, out, never lean out of the riverboat. <laughs> <laughs> never no, never reach way. up and touch a branch in the riverboat. Uh, leave your social drugs and your hard alcohol at home when you're in, driving the riverboat. Mm -hmm. The worst thing that you can do in a riverboat is get, get going too fast or have the stern be downstream of the bow. You are in deep dew at that stage. You hit something sideways and your riverboat will break in half. Yeah. Um, the leaning thing, <laughs> I had had my number five boat built by Roger Wisniewski. Great boat builder when he was still here, although I hear he's back from, from Florida. Uh, he was may have been my maiden voyage and in the front seat of the riverboats underneath uh, in the old boats was a live well mm -hmm. so that you could slide the fish in to keep your fish well mine of course was all dry so the seat and we used padded swivel bass boat seats you know so okay. so the, the client would be really comfortable <clears throat> And there were little push locks, you know, the little, I don't even know what, what you call them, a door lock where to you slide the bolt through and you, you angle it, it down and you put one of those on each side to hold the seat in. Mine weren't in, but the, <laughs> but the deck piece was so tight, I didn't think it would be a problem. So I'm fishing Hillary. I'll keep his last name out of it. Uh... <laughs> Very at this stage, he was the he was the manning part, partner of the second largest law firm in in Michigan, Natural Resources Commission. Just a wonderful, wonderful guy. has has a place across the river. So Hillary and I are fishing. We're running the South Branch. Okay. And we and we had a good day. We had caught fish, 
And we're down Canoe Harbor area. Slow, slowish water. And the water was probably three feet deep. And Hillary did something. And I saw him go to do a high-speed lean to the left. And number one, you don't want to do it because you just don't want to fall out of the boat or you don't want to tip the boat over. Well, he leaned and that seat let go. Ooh. And Hillary's, Ooh. Hillary's not a big guy. And I shot Hillary, I, I, my joke is, I shot Hillary about 10 feet through the air. <laughs> and he went completely underwater. Ooh. Stood up gasping and I'm just freaking horrified. Here you've tried to drown the managing partner of the largest, second largest <laughs> law firm in the state of Michigan. Well, he always brought warm, had his waders on, but he had brought extra clothing and the sun's out. So we get him up on the shore and I'm ferrying clothes back and forth. didn't the boat over there. Uh-uh. Didn't take on any water. And I got the second grade giggles. <laughs> I drop some stuff off and I'm walking back out to the boat and I'm choking absolutely choking holding these giggles back and I take a breath and I bring my next thing back to Hillary and he looks like this drowned rat and I lose it completely bent over bust a gut crying laughing Hillary starts to laugh we start to get him back in the boat and he says okay Dennis here's the deal Neither one of our reputations need this. <laughs> you don't tell anybody. I won't tell anybody. And I probably I probably didn't share that story for 10 years. He, oh, that was absolutely hilarious. That's wonderful. It looked like he had been shot out of a cannon. Oh, just, God. If you could have ever had something on video back then, that would have been the time. Yeah. Beautiful. And you got oh. the seat back. But yeah, the seat popped up and it came right back down. down. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Did he lose anything? Nope. Didn't lose uh -uh. a thing. Uh -uh. Just a, just Fortunately, the water was slow. He just lost yep. a little pride <laughs> and scared the snot out of me. Uh, we don't have to tell anybody about this. Just, story. In 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 that kind of a boat, you know, you're looking at a boat that's on the average a big Stefan boat is 24 feet long. It's probably not more than three feet across. Not that wide. It's probably 18 inches draft gunnel, gunnel mm -hmm. down at the most. You have to treat it. It's very stable, but you have to treat it as a canoe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, from yeah. a guiding standpoint, you don't go fast. Uh, mm -hmm. You go slowly, and you talk to your sport. And if you have to go in and fetch a fly, you're constantly telling... The client, I'll get it, I'll get yeah, it. Don't, don't reach don't out reach. and get your fly. Don't I've got reach. lots of flies, and if my call, it's my call. If I don't want to go in there and get it, we're going to break it off, and I'm going to yeah. tie in another. Put another one on. Tie on another buck. A lot better than dumping. Yeah. Um, don't mm -hmm. stand up. Don't. It's just so comfortable. Now, when you guide, uh, do you ever fish? No, you never have. The old guys used to do that yep. with the automatic reels yep. and, and part and of the catching it, fish given the, yep. to the client. Uh, when I, Roger and I ran my new boat on the Manistee for the first time, of course, you know, there was no guiding there. He wanted to run the boat, so I sat in the front. And we were using wet skunks, which is mm -hmm. probably the best man of wet fly man of the Manistee has ever seen. Big rubber leg. Did Neil... Uh, who, who, who did that? Was that... Uh, um, Madsen? 
That is a Matson fly. Matson fly. Okay. Chenille. Body. Of course, yeah, black. Um, Roger body. was fishing from the back while he was running the boat using an automatic fly reel, and he absolutely kicked my ass. Really, really? Wow. It just, I, 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 could, I could not believe it. Well, for one thing, I was using my skunks with different colors, and so I didn't catch anything until I put a black and white one back on. <laughs> I tried it once. Uh, as, a, as a guide, I would never in a million years under any circumstance fish when I've got a paying client, either okay. either in boots or in a boat, in a even boat. if they demand, I just say no. This is this just isn't this done. Is this time. this is your thing because if I do, and I never I never said it to anybody. I'm a hell of a lot better fisherman than you are. Sure. I'm going to catch the fish. Sure, I did. I tell you what, I did one time. My very one of my very first instructionals was a big guy from Detroit, computer guy named Mike Kelly, and it was Hendrickson time. It was nasty, windy, cold, and we got in at the we got in at the Pewitt Gates, started fishing back behind the island, and I'm instructing. I'm teaching him. And as a beginning caster in this horrible one, he can do anything. And we got down to Jody's, Rusty's sister's house, just below their dock, below an overhanging tree, about this far from the bank, a nice fish is eating Henrickson's. You watched him, yeah. Mark, come on, Mike, come here. So he casts, and he casts, and he's just dragging the fly all over the oh, place. Jesus. And he, he misses the fish a couple times, and we're already steadfast friends. I'd only known him for six hours. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm trying to be gentle to him, and you want to, and you just want to say to him, give me yeah, let just me, give me that. Let me hook that for you. So I said, well, let's move on. He says, no, here, smartass, you catch it. Oh, okay. And I said, listen, Mike, That's let's a- just move on because I'm going to catch that fish, and I'm going to catch that fish on the first cast, and you're going to be pissed. Now, bullshit, yeah, da-da-da-da, here. I take his rod, and I check the fly, and I make one cast, shoot it up under there through a teeny little quick mend upstream and catch a 15-inch brown trout. First cast. <laughs> he was pissed. And I just slowly kind of look upstream at Mike. You know, he's only six feet away from me with a look on his face. And he's got that, he's got that look on his face. He's not pissed that he didn't catch the fish. He's pissed because I said I was going to catch it, and I did. You did, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah. typically, nah. It's not a good idea. Nah. No, you don't want to do that. Uh the instructing, I, I really, really like the instructing thing. And every once in a while, when I had the right student, instruction was always during the day, typically, you know, because they're beginners. Um, <laughs> I had an older guy, Sulphur Time, nice guy. I cannot remember his name. We had a fish down in front of the Whippoorwill where we did a lot of our field testing of flies, uh, right? Immediately below the Whippoorwill boathouse, this fish was mammoth. Feeding on sulfur spinners. I would not cast to it because I knew I could hook it, and even with forex tipping on a size eighteen, you could not land this. This I I just didn't want to do it. Um, So I told this guy we had dinner, and I said, "You want to see something really cool tonight? You want to have an opportunity to cast to a really, really big fish?" Oh yeah, I said, "Well, I'll come and pick you up." So I took him down. We parked at uh, Golden's, which is Twin Pine Lodge. Now I had. Trespass permission, walked down in here. I said, we're just going to stand here and we're going to wait. 
and this fish is going to move out from underneath that bank. Water's only about this deep, and he's going to feed right there, and he's going to throw waves this big around when he comes up <laughs> to take up. these <laughs> these sulfur spinners. I'm good. So I never, I never feeding station. Never, for, you know. never saw the fish, but I'm going to guess mm. this fish just based on the rye. And I finally did well. So this fish comes out and start to feed. This guy is so intimidated. He <laughs> is so freaked out by the size of this fish. It, it, it was like it was slashing at hex spinners, mm. <laughs> throwing water five feet. God you know, please. just he's whack. He's whacking these things. This guy was scared. That's shitless. unusual, isn't it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He was. He was really eating these things, and it sounded like the toilet flusher. Yeah. And he said, well, come, you know, let's go. And he says, no, you go ahead. You do you, I, I at least want to see. So I took, and I did not want to fight this fish. I wanted to hook it, so of course it's barbless. So I've got on a size 18 fly. I put 6X tippet on. I didn't, yeah, I did not want to <laughs> fool, fool with this fish. First cast, this fish took, and you know, you get... It's always the fish stories. Oh, I felt that thing, and it felt like a 10-pounder or whatever. Uh, five, it, I don't know. It was 5 or 6X, but it was a size 18, and he was very solidly hooked, and I was probably using a Winston graphite of some kind. And you could just pull and and nothing. He just sat, he just sat there. And you pull back, and you pull forward, and you try and lift him. And he was really? obviously fair hooked, and then he had enough, and he swat back on, swam back under the bank and broke me off. This fish could have been eight pounds. Hell, I don't know. <laughs> you never saw it? No. Nope. And I went back the next day, went back the next day, because I knew he was under this bank where there's railroad ties, where the water's only that deep to these. the top of the tie. So I rolled up my sleeve and shoved my hand up under there. I could not touch the back. And... The bottom of the bank and the covers was like this, uh, or the, the ceiling, if you will. The bottom was like that. This fish mm. sitting in there had to have its pectoral fin touching. Touching. It was just. Jesus. It's just, just incredible. <laughs> so those, those fish, fish like that to me are to be hooked and not landed. You don't want to fight a big fish like yeah, that. Yeah. Could I put on something could, and you probably could, you're going to hurt him? You're going to kill him. Yeah, likely. I, I, he yeah. was. That's a noble fish, man. That's a yeah. survivor. <laughs> so that but that's st- unusual for a big fish. Oh, to I've be never, I've that never seen the biggest non-hex dry fly fish I ever caught was 26 and a little over inches. God, just before sunset. Just below my place, above Caldas's, right at the bend. Yeah, I know where that is. Um, a Henriksen spinner every 30 feet on the water, and I'm playing Jeez. nods, our old fishing game with Mike Kelly, my buddy, where you take turns on a fish uh-huh. until you hook it, you put it down or whatever. Kelly's cast into this little fish, and I see the splash, big splash down below, and I was using my Paul Young Princess. Oh, okay. That seven and a half foot four weight, and I said, Mike, we got a whale. Come and cast this fish. And he said, no, i got to catch this. It's a game. you got to catch that fish. <laughs> and he's, he's, he's on the inside of fast water, so you pull out a bunch of line, and you throw your line, and I'm mending, feeding line like crazy, hook this fish. Um, and after a 20 or so minute, Ooh. we slide. Mike Kelly's got this little teeny net. And I'm pulling on this fish, and I hadn't seen it. And I said, Mike, get down here below me and get ready to net this fish. Because first you think, hey, that's a nice fish. 
Now that's a small fish foul hooked. Mm-hmm. Now that's a bigger fish. Well, that's a bigger fish foul hooked. <laughs> I said, if we break them off, we break them off, and I got to be careful with the rod because I got 5X tippet on, and he's down there 10 feet below me. And I take that bamboo fly rod and pull up, and this huge son of a bitch comes up to the surface. Uh, 26 and a half inch, God, male brown, eating Hendrickson spinners twice a minute with the sun still up. In the sunshine. And I've got a beautiful glass mount of that that Birdman oh, really? Joe, that Joe Siegler did for me. Oh, and nice. still have the fly in the mouth of Oh, the, you left it in the, yeah. Yeah, yeah very cool. So oh, it, it, it does happen, but sure. that's, that's, that's a rare thing. They're rare. Very, very rare. rare. That fish is, and who, who knows where that fish came from. Uh, it, it's notorious how far big browns move in the Osable system to feed. You're, but don't you, they stay in one place usually? You can be hex fishing on a log jam someplace and catch a big fish on a hex. That fish could have come had, could have come for miles. They you did could. a study at Louis Landing years ago where the DNR tagged two 20 inches browns to do telemetry studies. Mm-hmm. Came back the next day, one fish is still in the area, they can't find the other fish. They come back, check again the next day, they're both there. They check later, one fish is still there, the other fish is not there. They can't figure out what the hell's going on. Mm. So they staged themselves and at 5 o'clock or whatever time it was, one of these fish drifted out of the main, or did it swim up from there, Louis, swam upstream, out of the mainstream, into the east branch, and fed around, spent its night around the back of the hatchery. And then every morning about 5 o'clock, it would drift and swim back and go under the exact same log jam, 10-mile round trip. Golly, I hadn't heard that. Yeah. Because Luttonton did a study, what, a few years ago uh, with uh, telemetry, and we'd be out at night checking those fish, and... And they almost stayed in within a you know two hundred foot yeah, area yeah. for a month. Yeah. You know, every night some every of these checking the daytime, check at night. Yeah. At night they move out to a feeding station, but during the day they're under that jam. Every, I can remember taking it. I had a I had trespass permission for quite a while into the very last piece of property on the South Branch. The South Branch came down, it was before. a T. The mainstream came in, and then it turned to go downstream to form what we call the Stillwater. Mm-hmm. And we go in there for hex spinners, and had I think it was Father Michael, a Greek Orthodox priest who I taught. <clears throat> nice guy. We're sitting on a picnic table at this cabin with a light on behind us. It's now dark, looking down this six or eight foot, fairly steep rocky hill. And we both happened to be looking at the water at the same time, and about this far from the shore, this huge wake came upstream. Michael, there's a beaver. Did you see that beaver? <laughs> I said, no, nah, Michael, that's not a beaver. That was a, that was a fish. <laughs> we wait and we sit there for, you know, a couple more minutes. Zoom, up here comes another one and they're moving up to stage. Who yeah, knows how so, far they came to stage so, uh, to feed along that bed. Yeah, interesting. That wasn't uh, Roar's place, was it? It was a red Roar. Can't remember the name. Red Cabin, right at the very okay. end of the South Branch. He owned that corner on the South Branch. Okay, that old guy that, and he, I think he sold that now, hasn't he? Oh, it's this is. We're talking back when I was at Gates. I have no idea. Oh, okay, this yeah, was kind of a young guy who, okay. who owned it, right. and I taught him how to hex fish. 
I had done the very rare hex instructional because I'm not a hex guy. Paul Dunbar? Can't. Nah, that okay. doesn't sound right either. Okay, okay. That was very interesting. Got, so, yeah, some of those fish, fish move, some mm -hmm. move great distances, mm -hmm. at least for that kind of an event. Okay. Um, That's interesting. So, yeah, very cool. Very cool. Neat. I wanted to tell you a story about fly tying. I think you get a kick out of it. This was told to me by Dave Brandt. Oh, yeah. I know Dave. Dave, Dave uh, was telling me about, uh, he, he was a pretty good fly tire, and he ran Joan Wolf's fly tying yeah. school for yeah. quite a while. And he said he had a mentor that was a hell of a fly tire, and he met him in a show one time, and, and he was proud of this fly he created, and he, he, he gave it to him. He says, hey, Dennis, what do you think of this? And his mentor took it, picked it up, looked at it, and held it up, oh, looked at it from underneath and on top, and then he went, put it in his pocket, he says, yeah, I can fix that. <laughs> <laughs> he was really, man, could he tie those Catskill flies. Oh, oh yeah. boy. Yeah. I watched him do that up in Minipee. Uh, uh, yeah. For the brook trout yeah. up in uh, Labrador. Yeah. Yeah, he was a good guy. Yeah, I haven't seen him for 30 years. Yeah, he's Very a, interesting. Good fellow. Yeah. <laughs> and that cute story, though. Good story. I told him I told that story a lot of places, and then I, I talked to him uh, a couple of years ago. I had my grandsons, and we were going to go fish in the, the Catskills, and it was opening day. It was stupid because I I called him before we'd already rented a cabin on the Never Sink or whatever, and uh, it was like a foot and a half of snow still. Oh day. yeah. He said, "Glenn, don't bother." I said, "Oh, we're already committed." So he said, "Yeah, go ahead, but you're not going to." And we didn't catch any fish. Yeah. Uh, and I had a bottle of Lagavulin. Oh, that uh, the smoke. The grandkids, yeah. grand, two grandsons yeah. were looking forward to that. And I told them, we're going to celebrate and we get fish. Well, we didn't catch any fish. So the last night they said, well, at least we're going to enjoy the log of wool. I said, no, no, no. Oh, jeez. We don't, <laughs> we don't celebrate <laughs> failure. Oh, oh. This. Oh. Hey, we had a good time. But, but that was for celebrating catching fish. We didn't catch any fish, guys. Grampy, you're kidding. I said, no, we don't celebrate failure. We're going to celebrate what we did, but... You're going to have some of this Woodford Reserve, a nice bourbon, and some plenty of beer, but that Lagavulin is for celebrating catching fish. Didn't do it. They came up here, caught fish, we opened a Lagavulin. Great. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> what well done. Good stuff, man. Good. Dennis, good great. Stuff. It was fun. Thank thanks, you so much. That was fun. That was a hoot. I love it. Good story. Hey, that was fun. Uh, Dennis is always a hoot. We'll probably have him back. Uh, so thanks for tuning in again this week. I uh, hope you enjoyed everything. Be sure to visit us on the web at lthsmuseums.org or uh, follow us on Facebook. Uh, we have that too. So until next time, mind your backcast. <laughs>